First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't generate amusing holiday cards, but it will personalize career paths for your people and let you know which suppliers are best so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This is Secrets of the Most Productive People, a productivity podcast where we work smarter instead of harder and dissect exactly how to get it all done. I'm Fast Company contributing writer and editor Anissa Purbasari-Horton, coming to you from my tiny closet in Mexico City. And I'm Fast Company assistant editor Pavitra Mohan, filling in for Kate Davis. So this week, we're talking about beating imposter syndrome. So imposter syndrome is something that you and I have talked about extensively and something that we're both very, very familiar with, I feel. Yes, I feel like it's one of those things that's just going to be a lifelong battle. My experiences with it have definitely evolved, but I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Oh, yeah, definitely. I totally think the same way. So maybe for listeners who aren't familiar with the term, it's the feeling of inadequacy and incompetence. You feel like you're a fraud, someone's going to expose you any minute, except there's actually a lot of evidence to show that you're actually great at what you do. And I mean like hard, unbiased evidence, like awards and, you know, winning competitions and all of that stuff, not people's opinions. I I think a good way to illustrate it is to use the example of an athlete who consistently wins but still feels like they're just not good enough. Um, Or, you know, in our case, a writer who writes for top-tier publications but is convinced that everything they do is just a fluke. Oh, my God, that hits way too close to home. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And later in the episode, Pavitra is going to talk to Minda Hartz, who runs a career platform for women of colour about why imposter syndrome is especially prevalent amongst underrepresented groups and marginalised communities. But first, let's talk about our personal experiences. So, Pavitra, I'm curious, when did you first come across the term and what was the process that went through your mind when you realised that this kind of feeling actually has a name? All right. So I'm going to go on for a bit here, but (laughs) I feel like I felt this for so long, but didn't really have the language to describe it until I was an adult. Um, I think it's actually gotten more pronounced in a way as I've gotten older, but I probably first experienced it towards the end of high school. I think I've always been someone who had a strong work ethic and perfectionist tendencies, which I hate admitting, but I attribute part of that to my years of arts training, playing the violin and dancing, which I think can kind of inculcate that in you. But in terms of academics, like things had always come relatively easily, and then I think when it got harder, I just wasn't really sure how to deal with it, especially because I grew up in this really uh, competitive environment in the Bay Area. So I think in college, it really kind of came to a head and I had to like deal with these feelings. Um, And I recognized at that point that it was really tied up in a lot of anxiety issues as well, which I think is pretty typical for um, a lot of people who experience this often. So I, I can't really pinpoint exactly when I learned there was a term for this feeling, but I do think it was a year or two after I started working. And I distinctly remember reading a story by Jasmine Hughes, who's an editor at New York Times Magazine, when she decided to dress up as Cookie from the show Empire for a week. And I I remember the headline was, I dressed like Cookie for a week to get over my imposter syndrome. And I remember reading that and feeling like I wasn't, you know, totally out of my mind or just crippled by anxiety, though I think, to be fair, that might still be true. (laughs) So how about you, Anissa? Oh, my God. I remember reading the article and how was this like? 
I really wish I could do this, but I don't know if I would have oh, the I courage to dress up the way <laughs> yeah. they do to get over my imposter syndrome. Yeah, I mean, growing up, I felt like I was a relatively smart kid, but I was never the top of anything or really good at one thing. I was kind of more just like above average, but not the best. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this was true, because I think when people were younger, they... Like, I feel like kids used to boast about how little studying they did when... Yeah, that's a thing. And then they still thing. get A, you know, straight mm-hmm. A's. And, but I always felt like I studied harder than all of my smart friends because they mm-hmm. seemed to not study at all and, you know, still get really good grades. Yeah. And when I became aware of this, I remember thinking to myself, like, th- literally this was the thought process that, like, I don't know, 15-year-old Anissa had was oh my God, I'm a dumb person trapped in a smart person's body mm-hmm. and I need to keep working my butt off or people would find out that I'm actually dumb. Mm-hmm. And so like you, I feel like that fueled some unhealthy perfectionist and workaholic tendencies that I feel like I'm still trying to recover from. Yeah. And it's funny because that was literally what, what I had thought of as literally textbook imposter syndrome. But I didn't know there was a term for it. We don't, you know, you don't really learn it as a kid. And I discovered the term, I think, when I read Lean In, which I know, you know, has its problems. But hey, I was 23. And back then, mm-hmm. <laughs> there were like no books written by women of, you know, talking about women in the workplace. Yeah. And also, I was working as a lawyer in a white male-dominated environment with like one other white woman. So that was obviously right. the so book that everyone was talking relevant. about. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But even then, I still found it hard to grasp the idea that super accomplished people like Sheryl Sandberg experienced it. And... I didn't really sort of click just how much of a phenomenon and common it was until a few years ago when I feel like we started writing and covering the topic. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is actually a thing. And, you know, I spent most of my working life and growing up in spaces and environments where I was often one of the very few women of color. And so I think it took a few years of experiencing that to really understand the impact that it can have on imposter syndrome. And I know that this is something that, you know, you are going to talk later about when you talk with Minda. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty recent that we've really discovered the language to talk about this and and that people are talking about it more openly. But um, to your point, I grew up around more people who looked like me. And so I think I didn't actually give that much thought to how I would feel when that was no longer the case and, you know, how that would be compounded by the other stresses of being in a work environment. So I can I can relate to that feeling of being one of the only people who looks like you do in the room and having to, like, work through a lot of these issues in tandem yeah. with that. Um, also, it's funny you mentioned being a perfectionist because according to Dr. Valerie Young, who has interviewed a lot of high achievers to kind of understand why they might have imposter syndrome. There are five common types of imposter syndrome, of which being a perfectionist is one of them. That's right. I remember reading the article and I was blown away. I was like, wait, there are different types of imposter syndrome. What was what were the other four types again? So the perfectionist is one of them. And, and this is the kind of person who sets unattainable standards and then sort of beats themselves up when they don't meet it. And then there is the superwoman or superman who feels like they need to work harder than everybody else to measure up. They're the people who tend to stay later in the office and feel like they need to just sort of work harder and longer to prove their worth. And then there is the natural genius who feels like everything should just kind of come naturally and easily to them. And if they take longer to learn something, they feel like a failure. And then I think we have the soloists who see asking for help as a sign of weakness and the experts who feel like they'll never know enough or just fear being exposed as, you know, not being knowledgeable. 
Okay, scratch the perfectionist uh, label. I actually feel like I identify more with the superwoman man, even though, I don't know, even hearing that makes me cringe. I know. (laughs) Which one do you identify the most with? I'm squirming just thinking about having to say this, but uh, I think I would fall into the category of having been more of a natural genius. Again, I cannot believe I'm saying this. I wish there were other (laughs) terms to describe this because it could not be further from what I actually think. But I think when I was younger, I I had a little bit of that issue where I felt like I was supposed to be just good at things. um, And I kind of struggled with the realization that that wasn't going to be the case forever. (laughs) And that, that probably was never the case to begin with. But I think since college, I've kind of shed that and I've worked on that a little bit. Unfortunately, that means I'm still a perfectionist, but I I don't know. I feel like I can see myself in most of these types. So that means I've uh, really grown as a person, obviously. Yeah, the natural genius one is interesting because I kind of do feel like part of it is societal conditioning. Like there's this idea that you're naturally talented at something. Yeah. And then sometimes it just happens that school cultivates certain types of talents and completely abandons or isn't sued you know isn't suited for other types of talent so yeah no I just feel like it creates this sort of that's where it creates this false expectation that if you know I think that then kids start having this idea that that everything should come easily to them because school because the stuff at school has been stuff that's been you know that come naturally to them but then when it comes to doing something difficult and they don't get it right they're like oh no I'm a failure when it's like no this just comes harder to you because it's not natural you just need to take more time to learn it right right and also like if you're taking you know advanced classes of course it's going to be harder and I think people just assume that they they'll continue to feel like you know things are at their level, even as they're, you know, going on to college. But yeah, I think the natural genius one is really sort of perpetuated by exactly what you described earlier, where there's this like strange competitive um, need to like not talk about how much you study or to be like, oh, I didn't get to study enough or I stayed up till this time finishing my homework or wasn't well rested for the exam this morning. And I, I don't know, people really like to talk in that way. It's like a competition of how little can you study and how mm-hmm. good of a grade can you get as a result. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Not really healthy. <laughs> Not helpful. Okay, so now that we've talked about our experiences with it, I think we should talk about some of the ways we've tried to beat it. I actually did an article about it last year when I was still full-time at Fast Company and just got promoted. I tried power dressing, not quite like cookie, but you know. <laughs> Look, it's hard to be cookie. I mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't even have some of the clothes. I would, I would I have to spend like a lot of my paycheck to look like that. Right. So right. I chose not to do that. <laughs> anyway, I also tried reciting affirmations to myself. I tried power posing. And then I also kept an achievements and praise folder. Um, and then the last thing that I did, which, you know, seems really simple, but actually was really insightful, which I actually found really effective, was I forced myself to do an uncomfortable thing every day. That's really interesting. And I'm already cringing thinking about a praise folder and how I would <laughs> respond to that. Um, you know, I don't know if I've really cracked this. I feel like I'm, I'm very much still working on this and will probably continue to do so for many years to come. I feel like I'm more self-aware of my imposter syndrome now and I'm better at accepting my feelings instead of letting them kind of get the better of me. I do also make sure that I'm prepared for anything that makes me nervous or anxious, though, as we've discussed before, that can be a slippery slope if you take that too far and you kind of convince yourself that you have to over-prepare for anything, even when you're perfectly qualified to do it. Um, yeah. So I think that one's a little 
tough. And I always have to kind of keep that in mind and remind myself that I am fully capable of doing something that I've done a million times without overpreparing. I do think that dressing up, like you mentioned, works to a degree, but I cannot keep that up on a daily basis. So I'm curious, you know, how did those techniques work for you? Yeah, so I agree with you. Power dressing did give me immediate confidence. And I think I think I tried every technique for a week and I was like, okay, I'm going to keep doing this. But then by sort of the third or the fourth week, I was like, you know, I love my comfortable clothes and especially comfortable shoes. (laughs) It doesn't matter how expensive your heels are. I know that they make those comfortable heels now, but they can never be as comfortable as flats. (laughs) They can't. Nope, nope. I can't do that every day. It's never going to happen. Exactly. So I did. I didn't end up adopting that in the long term because I was just like, I like my confidence, but I like my comfort better. So I'm choosing comfort. Anyway. <laughs> sounds good to me. Yeah. Power posing and reciting affirmations sounds as awkward as you would imagine. <laughs> um, and it didn't help me. And I think like, I think that there's actually research showing that it's more of a placebo effect. So I think because oh, I, I don't know if part of it was because I was already skeptical and read the research of why it might not work. So then right. the placebo effect didn't work. Yeah. Um, keeping an achievements and praise folder was nice. Uh, there was actually one of our colleagues idea. Um, and it reminded me of things that, you know, the younger me would have been proud of, but the present me just thinks that it's something that I do every day. But to be honest, I ended up not looking at it throughout the experiment because when my imposter syndrome comes up, the last thing I want to do is look at my phone because I will inevitably end up on Instagram. And you know that Instagram is the worst for when you're not feeling great about yourself. So I would say the most, the most useful one that I found is actually just forcing myself to be in uncomfortable situations. And rather than trying to stop myself from being nervous, I just kind of accepted that it was going to, you know, I was going to feel really uncomfortable. So I think I put my hand up to speak at a panel where everyone else was like 20 years older than me. And of course, I was like the only, no, I think there was one other woman of color in that event. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, surprising. Um, (laughs) Attended a networking event where I didn't know anyone, which I know we have to do anyway, but I don't know. I still find it uncomfortable. And I remembered actually, I think I interviewed Dr. Young for this article and she told me that part of how we... And when I say we, I'm talking about us who have imposter syndrome can thrive and not let our imposter thoughts prevent us from taking action. It's just to acknowledge that it's okay for us to have these uncomfortable feelings rather than fight them away. Because sometimes, I don't know about you, but my these kind of discomfort is exacerbated when I think to myself, I shouldn't be having these thoughts because... Yeah. I'm qualified. Why am I still worried about this? And then you just get into a spiral. I completely agree. And I I think journalism as an industry forces you into uncomfortable situations pretty often. Yeah, so exactly. I I find it really interesting that I chose this career. But I I do think too, right? Yeah, like I still get really nervous when I before I talk to a source. And that's literally something I do every single day, two or three times a day. (laughs) I hear you. And I mean, a lot of that is just a matter of getting accustomed to it and getting used to, like you said, that feeling of discomfort and just letting it sit um, and not trying to, you know, aggressively like tamp that down. Um, But I agree. I think it forces you into these sort of uncomfortable situations pretty often. And I think a lot of people in journalism are, in fact, somewhat introverted and, and probably deal with imposter syndrome a good amount. So what I find that interesting that we are always putting ourselves in those situations. But I do think it's actually helpful because, like you said, I feel like that's a pretty effective way to try and, and fight off your imposter syndrome. Yeah, because you're not 
it's not even, I feel like it's not even fighting it. It's just kind of acknowledging that it's always going to be there, but you're not going to let it stop you from doing the right, things right. that you want to do or putting not let your it hand consume up you. for opportunities mm-hmm. that you're too scared to take. So I don't know. And when you do it once or twice or, you know, it, you realize, oh, that wasn't so bad. And then that kind of helps you, um, I think, address those feelings. And, and like you said, never ignoring them, because I agree that that's not helpful, but just kind of accepting it and being able to move past it and still take an opportunity. I remembered someone refer it to as like, if you give your imposter syndrome a name, like you give the critical voice in your head, then it's like another character and it's not part of you. That's actually something I've never tried when it comes to imposter syndrome, but I'm going to try it next time and see if it's effective. Yeah, well, I would love to hear more about that. So report back. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take a quick break. And when we're back, I'm going to be speaking with author and CEO of The Memo, Minda Hartz. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Joining me today is Minda Hartz, who is the author and CEO of The Memo. So, Minda, you've talked a lot about imposter syndrome in your work and and also in media interviews. For people listening who might not have read The Memo and aren't otherwise familiar with your work, can you share a little bit about how imposter syndrome has affected you in the workplace? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. For me, I am a or I was a first-generation college student and the first one in my family to work a corporate job. And so when you go into an environment where you, A, this is kind of new for you, and then B, you're the only one and only woman of color or only one of anything, you sometimes question if you belong in those rooms. And I remember my first time at a business dinner and there were so many forks on the table. I'm like, what are these things? You know, so you start to, (laughs) you start to question, you know, do I belong here? And, and I think that's when the imposter syndrome starts to creep in. Yeah, yeah. So so for you, it really came from a place of, of feeling like you had not been in those rooms that, you know, you were a first generation college student. I imagine it was not just a matter of like being the only woman of color in the room, but also just feeling like, do I really belong here? Yeah, from all different kind of intersections, right? So I'm A, the only black woman, only woman of color in the firm that I was working in. And then B, um, the socioeconomic balance was a little different, right? So, you know, I grew up in an apartment, you know, subsidized housing, whereas most of my colleagues, you know, had second homes in Aspen. And, you know, (laughs) so some of the things that I had held really close to the vest and really enjoyed in my childhood, I started to feel a little embarrassed because I didn't realize, you know, that and it doesn't take away from the privilege that they had, but I started to question, am I up for the task? Do mm-hmm. I belong in these environments? Can I, do I have to fake it till I make it? And so I think there's all these different mental gymnastics at play. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I feel like the term imposter syndrome has been around for some time. If I recall correctly, it was uh, used as early as the 1970s. But I feel like we're really only talking about it um, or maybe, you know, talking about it more openly in recent years. So when do you think that you kind of realized that what you were feeling actually had a name and a terminology and, 
you know, how did you sort of learn to talk about it in that way? Yeah, it's interesting because I think talking about imposter syndrome is a level of vulnerability. And when I started out in my career, we didn't have the word to latch onto, right? So I didn't know the emotions I was feeling, yeah. right? So I was second guessing myself. I was doing a lot of questioning of myself when I knew at the core of it, I had worked hard to get in these rooms and that I should have just owned that. Mm -hmm. But I think that questionable and that vulnerability to let people in and get to know you or how much of yourself do you share? I think you you don't often know what's like the right thing. And so I, I don't think that I found the language until in the past few years when mm -hmm. there was more talk about it openly. And I think then you find that you're not the only one feeling that way. I'm also curious, did you grow up in environments where you were the only woman of color or were you around more people who looked like you or or did you sort of feel like there was this really drastic shift between the way you grew up and what you experienced in the workplace? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, so I'd say like half and half. Um, my formative years, probably up until 12 years old, I was around a very diverse group. I grew up in Southern California. And then when I when my family moved to Illinois to a small town in, outside of Chicago, it was very segregated. So that mm. was one of the first times that I felt like the only. So even as a teenager, I felt kind of this inadequacy because my my parents were very, you know, working class and some of my peers, you know, their parents were doctors and, and things of that sort. And so I did feel that kind of anxiety as a young child. But again, I didn't know I didn't have the language and, you know, neither did my family. <laughs> yeah, uh, so it's yeah. one of those things that I'm glad that we're talking about it now, because now I know that I that everybody feels it at some point in their life, right? Absolutely. Also, I actually grew up in Northern California. I went to school uh, in Chicago, so I could sort of understand how that might have been a really drastic change uh, demographically <laughs> for you. So that brings me to my other question, which is, you know, my uh, co-host Anissa and I have talked about how we didn't necessarily understand that being one of the few women of color in a workplace can kind of exacerbate imposter syndrome and that, that it's a pretty big part of it. So I'm curious when you first came to that realization specifically that it had to do with you being one of the few in the room. And it, it sounds like maybe that happened during high school. But if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I think I felt I felt the differences. Right. I didn't have, again, language for it in high school. But then mm -hmm. when I got into the workplace, I realized that bias and unconscious bias really plays into how people feel. And I think it's mm -hmm. really important to talk about belonging inside of the workplace, because I think that would cut down on a lot of imposter syndrome, right? So yeah, when yeah. someone says, oh, you know, Minda, don't you know that that's the wrong fork that you're using? You know, so you already <laughs> have like, I'm not sure which fork to use. And then if somebody, you know, calls it out, you know, yeah. at a business meeting, or, you know, this is the wine glass that you use for red wine. And so, you know, at that time, I didn't have Google to, to be like, you know, what, <laughs> where's this place setting sort of thing. So you start to question everything. And I think with workplace politics and being one of the only one, you're already trying to prove to everyone that you're you're here because of you worked hard to get here and it's not because of any diversity numbers or this, that and the other. So yeah. I think that mental gymnastics, it's it's really hard, I think, for marginalized groups, there's so many layers of imposter syndrome, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it's almost like when you go to the doctor and they say, what's the pain point, you know, one to 10. And depending on where you are in that environment, and I think, again, belonging, I think cuts down on a lot of that imposter syndrome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there are so many different pieces to it. I think obviously, there's privilege, and then there's just 
even if you're privileged, but you are one of the few people in the room who who looks the way you do, that's still, you know, uh, that feeds into imposter syndrome as well. So, I, you know, with respect to knowing what fork to use, I, I have to say I would have no idea. I've never understood that, <laughs> so I can completely relate to that. Um, but I'm curious, you know, about how you think this has impacted your career trajectory and maybe some of the decisions you've made. So, I mean, what, what would you say has been the impact of imposter syndrome on some of the career moves you've made or uh, maybe some of the things you didn't go out for because you weren't sure that you were qualified? Yeah. Um, so it's funny. Uh, one thing that I, in my career, I was a fundraising consultant and there was one project uh, going to Texas mm-hmm. um, that that was presented to me. And I thought at that moment, I don't know if this is the right environment for me, right? I'm already in a situation where I'm feeling the imposter syndrome, I'm dealing with microaggressions and macroaggressions, would going to this place in Texas, would that just exacerbate the situation, right? And so I question, even though this situation, taking that role would have catapulted my career exponentially because I would have been the lead Mm -hmm. on that. And I really question if I could handle it, if I was ready, all of these things because of some of the people I was already working with and I would have had to go to this environment with them. And so I think that ultimately I leaned into it and I let my curiosity be larger than my fear, but there was always this question, if I deserve this, right? And But there's one quote that I always, that I live by in the last couple of years and it's by Audre Lorde and she says, beware of feeling like you're not good enough to deserve it. Mm -hmm. And whenever imposter syndrome starts to creep in, I remind myself of that. You know, you worked hard, you, you went, you had your advanced degrees, you know, every room that you're in now, you belong there, right? You decide if that's where you want to stay. And so it's redefining the mindset of always questioning kind of this enemy state of mind to an empire state of mind. You can make it anywhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Would you say there were times where you maybe didn't apply for something, um, you know, didn't didn't think you looked at a job listing, for example, and didn't think you met every requirement on there and didn't feel like you could apply? Is that something you've experienced? Oh, absolutely. There's plenty of things that even now sometimes I'm like, well, I don't have a diversity and inclusion, you know, traditional background, so I can't mm-hmm. very well, you know, go after that. But realizing that everything I do is through a lens of diversity, inclusion, and equity, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, um, so it's redefining the narrative and the story that I tell myself, right? So sometimes the story that we tell ourselves is that we can't do this, we don't check all of the boxes, and it's recreating a new narrative. But you'd say that you know you you got to a point where you you were able to understand this feeling and kind of fight it when it did come up, and I, I want to talk. A little later about techniques for that, but it sounds like that's something you did come to earlier in your career, maybe than uh, other people might have. Uh, yeah, you know, and I think it's the point that I realized that I needed to be vulnerable because I think I was holding all of this in and I wasn't talking to anyone about it. And then mm-hmm. once I did share it out loud, then I realized that there were others, um, especially, you know, other women of color that I knew that were feeling this yeah. way too. And then we were able to check in on each other and kind of build that that network of people that were checking in on each other. And I think that that's important too, that we, part of the healing or part of the the tactic is making sure that you do talk about it so that you're not holding that in. Right, right. And I mean, it's this intersection of both race and gender um, and mm-hmm. feeling like you are hit on both ends uh, by, you know, <laughs> assumptions or preconceived notions. And that can be really challenging to get out of your head and realize that 
<laughs> you have to you have to rise above it or you have to yeah um, yeah. yeah you I have mean, to know how to fight that it, feeling like, i spent 15 years in corporate america and for majority of those years i was questioning every situation right and mm-hmm. when you're doing that all the time that's that's a weight that you can't even show up as your authentic self because you're not even sure who that is. Yeah. So I think we, you know, obviously, as we've as we've been talking about this, um, we do discuss how imposter syndrome can hold people back a lot. But I do feel like there might be ways in which it can sometimes help. You know, th- there are certain there's a perspective that you have that maybe creates a certain amount of imposter syndrome, but might also be beneficial in the workplace. So I'm wondering if there are any ways in which you think it's actually inversely sort of helped you? Um, you know, at, probably at the time I thought, oh my God, no. But I do think that it did help me in a way because once I realized that at some point, yes, these external system, systemic issues were happening, but ultimately it's in my head, right? So mm-hmm. I have to, to, I have to figure out how to get out of my own head. And once I was able to do that, then I was able to open myself up to a whole lot of more possibilities in the workplace. And so I would say that it it forced me to have to kind of work a little harder at pushing myself into situations that I didn't think, like jumping mm. off the roof, if you will. Yeah. So I, I do think that it pushed me to be a better version of myself in the workplace um, in making sure that I covered all of my tracks and just shot bigger shots, you know. Um, yeah. So I do think it wasn't all bad. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's difficult because there's this tendency, or at least I certainly have this tendency to kind of over-prepare sometimes when I feel like maybe I'm not cut out for something or I'm not sure if, I, you know, I can do it. And I just sort of like shield against that anxiety by over-preparing, which I know is also not necessarily a good thing. So I think it can be challenging to kind of figure out the right balance of like addressing your imposter syndrome, but not letting it get to the point where you feel like you you aren't prepared for something unless you go even further than somebody else would. Absolutely. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about with respect to either your experience with imposter syndrome or things you've done to fight it? Yeah, I think for those who are in companies right now, and if you manage or you're part of employee resource groups, I think it's a really good conversational topic or if you talk about it within that, because I think that these are topics that we're not having in-depth discussion about inside the workplace. And so I'd love to hear more um, about that. And I think that we'd find that we're more alike than different and that we all do experience variations of this. So I think having that communal conversation would definitely help with the belonging piece. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of those conversations tend to be outward facing. So I think that would be really effective and helpful for people in the workplace. Well, thank you so much, Minda. It was really great talking to you. Thanks so much for joining me. So as you know, Kay is currently away on maternity leave, but she did have a few things to say in our recurring segment, You Might Want to Write This Down. So press pause, get your pen ready, because you might want to write this down. How to beat imposter syndrome. Number one. Learn to take your mistakes in stride. Try to view mistakes as a natural part of the process. Additionally, push yourself to act before you feel ready. There will never be the perfect time and your work will never be 100% flawless. Number two, train yourself to stop relying so heavily on external validation. No one should have more power to make you feel good about yourself than you, even your boss when they give your project that stamp of approval. 
On the flip side, learn to take constructive criticism seriously, but not personally. As you become more attuned to internal validation, you can start to nurture your inner confidence. Number three, keep a praise and achievements folder. Keeping a list of all of your quantifiable achievements is good practice for anyone who wants to get a promotion, but it's also useful to remind yourself how much you've done when you feel inadequate. Add compliments and praise to the folder too. When someone sends you a thank you email or your boss or colleague pays you a compliment, add it to the document. It's human nature to remember the bad and embarrassing moments, so force yourself to remember all the good things too. That's all for this episode. Be sure to subscribe to Secrets of the Most Productive People wherever you listen. What questions do you have about being productive and getting ahead at work? Let us know by leaving us a voicemail at 201-371-FASD. That's 201-371-3278. And we'll find an expert to answer your questions. Or you can also tweet your questions with the hashtag FCMostProductive. If this episode was helpful, please let us know. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can follow Fast Company on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Secrets of the Most Productive People is produced by Joshua Christensen. 